I want you to know from the outset that the warning of this passage is addressed to you. It is addressed to the church. It is written to baptized, professing believers who are part of the visible people of God. It is written to you and to me. And it is written to warn us against a very real danger, a great and ever-present peril in the church of every age, in the church of this age, indeed in this church of First Baptist Nixa. The peril is, is plainly stated for us in verse 12, where the author says, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See, the author is not writing to pagans. He is not writing to the unchurched people of this world. He is writing to brethren. And he is writing to warn us against falling away. And this is the second such warning. There will be four more. That will come in the book of Hebrews. The first was found in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Where we were warned to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it and thereby neglect so great a salvation. In that passage we saw that to drift away from Christ was to forfeit the salvation that is found only in Him. It is a dreadful thing to drift away. Here in chapter 3, we see that to fall away, the word that he uses there is the Greek word apostani, from which we get our word apostasy. To fall away from the living God is to perish under God's wrath and to be excluded from entering His everlasting rest. To fall away from the living God is to be eternally and irrevocably lost. And the warning is given to the saved. The warning is given to the church. The warning is given to the brethren. So from the outset of this message, I want to make two points abundantly crystal clear. Who it is that is in peril and what that peril is. So lest you think that you are somehow excluded from the warning of this passage, the only people in this room who are not addressed by the words of the author, by this warning, are those who make no profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Those of you who have never been baptized, those of you who do not identify with the church, those who have never begun to follow Christ in the first place. Because you cannot drift away from a message that you do not believe and you cannot fall away from an allegiance to the living God that you have never sworn. So let us be clear this morning because cloudiness and confusion will not help anybody here. Take care, members of First Baptist Nixa, lest there be in any of us an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, does this mean that it is possible for believers to lose their salvation? That's the question that's leaping into your minds and to many who are here, and I want to address it from the very front so that you'll hear the words that come hereafter. 
Is it possible for believers to lose their salvation? Is it true that Christians are not eternally secure in Christ? No. The biblical doctrine of eternal security is firmly established and it remains unshaken by the warnings of Hebrews, by the warnings of 1 Corinthians, by the warnings of Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and the book of Revelation and the words proceeding from the lips of our Lord Jesus when he said, only those who persevere to the end will be saved. The doctrine of eternal security is not shaken one bit by those warnings. We take our stand in this church on the truth that all those whom God predestines, He calls. And all those whom He calls, He justifies. And all those whom He justifies, He infallibly glorifies. Romans 8.30 From predestination to glorification and everywhere in between, none are lost and none drop out. They are eternally secure in the sovereign grace and saving purpose of our God. And in this church, we take our stand on the truth that the sheep hear the voice of Christ and He knows them and they follow Him. And He gives to them eternal life such that they shall never perish and neither will anyone be able to snatch them out of His hand. John 10, 27 and 28. The sheep of Christ are are unshakably secure in the strong and sovereign hands of the Good Shepherd. So no... This warning does not undermine the doctrine of eternal security. What it does is absolutely shatter the false notion that it matters not how you end the Christian journey so long as you begin it. It destroys the dangerous and deadly idea that salvation is merely an act of the human will. It's just a moment of human decision. And it does not involve the impartation of new life that bears fruit in a persevering faith and in a growing obedience and in a transformed life. It cuts against the rampant belief plaguing today's church that anyone and everyone who makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ will be saved regardless of whether their profession is matched by some evidence of real and genuine and saving faith. It warns us that not everyone who comes out of Egypt makes it into the promised land. On the contrary, there are many who will perish in the wilderness of this world because when their faith is tested, it does not endure. And instead, they respond to trials in unbelief and they murmur about how much better things were back in Egypt. So I would say to you this morning by way of introduction that we are saved by faith alone. But we are saved by a faith that trusts in Jesus all the way to the end. It trusts in Christ to rescue us out of Egypt. It trusts in Him to provide for us all along our wilderness journey. And it trusts in Him to bring us safely into the land of promise. We are saved by a persevering faith. And any faith that turns to murmuring unbelief or outright rejection is not true faith and it will not save. And my purpose this morning is to warn us because I don't want there to be any one of us 
that possesses an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So that's the peril, that's the danger, that's the warning. And in order to make his point clear, the author is going to employ an Old Testament illustration. He he draws a parallel between the Israelite generation that came out of the bondage of Egypt and the church, which has come out of a slavery of a different sort. The slavery of this world and the bondage of sin. And so in verses 7 through 11, he quotes at length from Psalm 95. And he says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the author of Psalm 95, which is David, so the author of Hebrews identifies him in Hebrews 4, 7. He seems to have two critical events in Israel's history in mind when he writes these words in Psalm 95. Two watershed moments that most clearly evidence the pervasive, persistent, rebellious unbelief of the Exodus generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. The first event is described for us in Exodus chapter 17. At that time, it had only been a matter of days since the Israelites had witnessed the spectacular display of God's sovereign power in the plagues as he triumphed over the gods of Egypt and made a public spectacle of them. It had just been days since they had witnessed the Lord's wrath poured out upon Egypt in the death of the firstborn and yet seen their own firstborn safe and secure beneath the blood of the Passover lamb. It had just been days since they had witnessed the Lord's deliverance and they walked out of Egypt on dry land through the Red Sea carrying with them the plunder of Egypt. It had just been days since they had seen the waters come back and destroy all of their Egyptian enemies in the flood. And it had just been days that they were following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Just days. Yet after all of this, at the first sign of difficulty, they grumbled. What are we supposed to eat out in this wilderness? Did you think of that when you brought us out? We had plenty of food to eat in Egypt. You have brought us out here to die. So the Lord in his mercy, he gave them bread from heaven in the morning and he sent quail for them in the evening. Well, what are we supposed to drink? There's no water out here. Why have you brought us out from Egypt only to kill us and our children and our livestock? So the Lord commanded Moses and he struck the rock at Horeb, and out gushed rivers of water. And this murmuring went on and on and on throughout their wilderness journey as they were relentless in their doubting of God's promise and of His power and of His presence among them and of His provision for them. 
The second event is described in Numbers chapter 14. By this time it had been a little over a year since the exodus. And now the congregation of Israel stands on the very border of the land of Canaan. The land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The land where God promised to bring them and to drive out their enemies and to establish them and to give them rest. And you know the story. The 12 spies were sent out to check out the land. And they found that it was just as God described. It was indeed a land of abundance. A beautiful land. A land flowing with milk and honey. But the land was also filled with people. And these people were large. And they lived in fortified cities. And so ten of the twelve spies came back and they told the congregation of Israel, we... We can't enter this land because the people are too big and strong and our God is too weak and powerless. And Joshua and Caleb, they begged the people of Israel and they pleaded with them, don't turn away. No, the Lord, He will bring us in if only we trust Him. They said the land that we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into the land and He will give it to us. And it is a land that flows with milk and with honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear the people of this land. For they will become our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do Not fear. But the people of Israel picked up stones in order to kill them. Then while the stones were yet in their hands, God came down in their very midst and he was not happy. How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all of the signs which I have performed in their midst. And God threatened to slay them right then and there. But Moses, once again, as he had done on Sinai, he interceded on behalf of the people. Yet God still swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. They would die in the wilderness. And I wonder if you see the parallel. I I wonder if you catch the point. Just in case we miss it, the author is going to press it home, beginning in verse 15. Make sure it's unmistakable. He quotes again from Psalm 95, and he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we, we see that they were not able to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. Therefore, let us, us, fear. Lest there be any of us that seem to have come short of it. While the promise remains of entering his rest. 
For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us just as they did also. But the word which they heard did not profit them because it was not united with faith in those who heard. Is it clear now? We, the church, in particular we, the people gathered at First Baptist Nixa, we are like that congregation of Israel. We too have been rescued out of the bondage to the cruel taskmasters of sin and Satan and the slavery of the law. We too have been delivered from God's wrath by seeking shelter underneath the blood of Christ who is our Passover lamb, so says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5-7. We too have passed through the waters of baptism just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10-2. We too eat bread from heaven and drink from the spiritual rock, which is Christ. So says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4. We too are in this wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. The wilderness of this world. In this journey between Egypt, which represents the world, and the promised land, which represents the new heavens and the new earth. We are the true Israel. We are the new covenant people of God. And therefore, this warning is for us. We must fear whether we display a heart of unbelief and perish in the wilderness as well. That's how the warning works. That's how the parallel exists. And the author's point in drawing this parallel is made so abundantly clear in two places. First is in chapter 3 and verse 12. When he says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then in Hebrews 4.1, therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of us may seem to have come short of it. Beloved, take care care beloved fear why because it is possible to be a visible member of the people of God and not yet actually be a believer it is possible to pass through the waters of baptism and not actually be cleansed by faith It is possible to eat the bread and drink the cup and not lay hold of the promises that they signify It is possible to exist along with the people of God for 40 years and yet perish in the wilderness. That is why we should fear and that is why we should take care that there not be in any one of us an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Because it happens all the time. Mired in the misery of sin and enslaved to our lusts and our passions and our addictions of various kinds, the word of the gospel comes to us. And life and joy and freedom and forgiveness are offered freely to anyone who will paint the blood of Christ over the doorposts of their life and follow Him out of Egypt, out of drug use, out of alcohol abuse, out of immorality, out of paganism. And it sounds good, right? I mean, joy sounds better than misery. Who wants to be miserable? And freedom sounds better 
than slavery? Who wants to be shackled? And forgiveness and eternal life sound better than condemnation and eternal death. And heaven sounds better than hell, much as Canaan must have sounded much better than Egypt. So you go. You join the church following Christ out of Egypt and and pursuing the land of promise. And you pass through the waters. And you begin to walk with the church through the wilderness of this life. But after a while you grow hungry and you become thirsty. And God provides you with His sustenance for the journey. And He gives you daily bread. But you grow tired of manna. The preaching of the word and the Lord's Supper and the fellowship of the saints and prayer and worship. And it all just begins to taste kind of bland and and boring and irrelevant. And you you grow weary of it. and, And all sorts of other things are just so much more interesting and so much more attractive. And and my heart begins to long for those things. And then there's the rules. Rules, 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 rules. And your memory begins to place tricks on you. And very subtly, at first, you begin to remember Egypt as freedom. And you begin to think of following Christ as slavery. At least in Egypt, you could do what you wanted. And then when the real trials come, When you see that your enemies are giants who dwell in fortified cities and they come by the name of poverty and cancer and grief and loss and disease and illness and hardship and tribulation and persecution. Your unbelief, which up to this point has only murmured and grumbled against God, suddenly breaks out in murderous rebellion. That's how it happens. And beloved, this is why so many drop out on this journey and wind up perishing in the wilderness. Some some leave because they desire the pleasures of Egypt. And others depart because they grow tired of eating daily bread. Because the journey is long and it is hot and it is difficult and it is fraught with danger. And there's a desert out there that lies between Egypt and the promised land. And they just grow tired weary of all this walking and all this following and all this worshiping. So they quit. Now, to be sure, they would never admit to dropping out. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, well, no, I I haven't been to church in in 15 years. Sure, I, I, I love the things of the world and and I don't love the things of God and I'm far more comfortable with unbelievers than I am with believers. But, I mean, once saved, always saved, right? Wrong. They always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways, saith the Lord. Therefore I have sworn in my wrath They shall not enter my rest. And they will not enter his rest. Why? Verse 19, because they do not 
believe. It's not that they were once saved and then became lost. That's not what's going on here. Rather, it is possible and happens all the time that people make a profession of faith and they're baptized and they join the church and they make a start on their journey, but they never had life. And they never had true faith. And they didn't know it. And nobody else knew it until testing came. And in the hour of testing and in the time of tribulation, their false, fraudulent, temporary faith was finally revealed for what it actually was. And they fell away. And to borrow a phrase from Adrian Rogers, faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. I worked on that. True biblical saving faith endures to the end. It not only follows Jesus out of Egypt. It follows the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night all the way through feasting, nourishing itself on the daily bread, drinking from the water and the rock. And it follows him all the way into the promised land. Look at Hebrews 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ. If. We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. There's another one of those loud ifs. We we encountered one in Hebrews 3.6. We are partakers of Christ, partakers of his atoning blood, recipients of his righteousness, of his inheritance, of his glory, if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end, from Egypt all the way to Canaan. Now, lest you think that this becomes some sort of salvation by works, I am earning My salvation by sticking with Jesus. That's not how it works. And the verb tenses in this verse make that plain. Look very, very closely. It's critically important that you get this. So that when you get into the promised land, you don't turn around and say, All glory belongs to me because I endured through the trials and I walked all these many miles and endured these many years. You will say, Glory belongs to God. Because by His grace, He has preserved me through it all. Look at verse 14. We have become. That's a perfect tense verb. What does that mean? It means that at some point in the past, we were converted. And that conversion has present and ongoing implications. It happened And it still has effects on me. We believed. We became partakers of Christ. And by faith we are still partakers of Christ. And then comes the condition. And it is a forward, future looking condition. If we hold fast our assurance firm to the end. This is a condition of evidence. 
If our confidence is that God is willing and able to preserve us all the way to the end and to take us into Canaan where we will be everlastingly saved, if that is my hope and confidence and remains my hope and confidence, then it is evidence that I am a partaker of Christ and became a partaker of Christ when I came out of Egypt. You see, I do not become a partaker of Christ when I cross the Jordan and enter the land. My crossing the Jordan and entering the land by faith is the evidence that I have been a partaker of Christ from the beginning. Do you see it? Glory is at stake here. Because I can boast in in my perseverance to the end unless I recognize that my perseverance to the end was all a work of God's sovereign grace. And God loves His glory. No perseverance, no genuine faith, no genuine faith, no salvation. That's the point. So what do we do? How do we prevent this sort of thing from happening? How do we prevent our falling away? How do we ensure that we are not among those who shrink back to destruction, but rather are of those who persevere to the end and are saved? I think two keys to perseverance are given us in this passage. The first is given in verses 12 and 13. First is given rather in verse 12, the second in verse 13. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care, brethren. That's what the author tells you to do. You want to prevent this from happening? Take care. Pay attention. Be aware. Do not allow yourself to be deluded into thinking that this warning is not addressed to you because you, quote, have done that so many years ago. You've had an experience of conversion. Listen, a conversion experience does not guarantee salvation any more than coming out of Egypt guaranteed their entrance into the land. The all-important question is this. Was true and saving faith born in my heart when I was converted? How do you know? You look for fruit, evidence. What what is the evidence of saving faith? It's an abiding faith. I believed and I'm still believing. If I wasn't here still believing, I would have no confidence in what happened to me back at the age of nine. Nor should I. Nor should you. Abiding faith. A growing love for Jesus. A growing love for Jesus which is manifested in a growing obedience towards Him. Because if you love me, you will keep my commands. You can see the evidence and there can be growing with you a strong confidence and a robust assurance that you are in the faith. But the surest evidence of saving faith is perseverance. Perseverance through the trials and the tribulations and the long years of your wilderness journey. And judging by the fact that you are here and not six feet in the ground, you are still on your journey. So you must take care. Pay attention to it. Heed this warning. Because that's what believers do. 
They heed the warnings of Scripture. Unbelievers swat them away. That's not for me. Believers take care. The warnings of Hebrews, in fact, are one of God's most effective means of preserving you in faith and getting you into the land. So number one, take care. Pay attention. The second is found in verse 13. But encourage one another. Day after day. As long as it is still called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You want to prevent falling away? Participate in the body. Plug in to the church. We need one another. Perseverance in the faith is a body activity. It's a corporate endeavor. It's a church-wide responsibility. We are our brother's keepers. Why do we need one another? He tells us it's because sin is so deceptive. It will trip you up if you try to go it alone. You'll be deceived into thinking that this, is, this part of my life is not that bad. I can handle it. The fact of the matter is you can't, and it is that bad, and it will destroy you. And so many times in our life, we need a brother or sister in Christ to point that out to us. You know, these Israelites, it occurred to me that they didn't know they were unbelievers. They, they didn't know that they would perish in the wilderness. Just as those fellows in Matthew 7 who appeared before Jesus in judgment saying, Lord, Lord, were utterly surprised, taken aback when Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. We need encouragement to believe God's promises. We need exhortation so that we will not be overtaken by the deceitfulness of sin. We need encouragements to persevere. Listen, perseverance is easy when things are going well. And it's hard when tribulations arise. Financial difficulties mount. Cancer strikes. Loss comes. And yet, that is, those are the very moments when so many people withdraw from the body. It's the very time to press in to the body. Everything that might come upon us and tempt us and threaten to derail our faith, in all of those things, we need one another to encourage us to persevere through everything, lest we be tempted to disbelieve God's promise, and to doubt His presence, and to deny His power, and to reject His provision. We need the church. So just take my word this morning. You will not make it on your own. Sin is too deceitful. Our hearts are too hard. Too naturally wicked. If you try to go on your own, you will die in the wilderness. 
why we have connect groups. This is one of the foundational passages for small group discipleship. You need a people with whom you are sharing life. Okay? Not attending and sitting in a circle with masks on our face and how are you? I'm fine and how are you? Things are going well. You need people to ask you hard questions and to keep their eye on you and to come alongside you when they see you stumbling. That's why we break. That's that's why corporate worship is not enough. If all you ever do is come at 1015. Where's the accountability? Where's the one-on-one exhortation? Who's going to grieve with you when you grieve? And who's going to rejoice with you when you rejoice? And who's going to come alongside you and say, Man, I care for your soul. And I saw you post something on Facebook that caused me to, to worry. Who's going to ask you that? You say, well, that's uncomfortable. So is dying in the wilderness. You've got to let people in. And you've got to have uncomfortable conversations. And we need to proceed forward in this church as if we were a family who are all marching to Zion together. Because if we do it together, we will make it. You'll die on your own. You'll make it if we go together. Together we will pursue the promised land. Together we will, we will follow the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Together we will eat of the daily bread and we will feed on the promises and we will go strong in faith and we will destroy our enemies. Together we will cross into the Jordan and we will enter into the land of God's rest and enjoy the bounty of His presence. Together, not alone, together. Pay attention, beloved, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God and participate in the body because perseverance is a group activity. Now, I am all too aware that a message like this can shake the assurance of many of you and cause you to doubt the reality of your conversion, to doubt your own salvation, and I would say that in one sense it is intended to do just exactly that. If your confidence is in a past decision and not in a daily, desperate dependence upon the grace of Christ. If your hope of salvation is in an event in the past, like say, the Exodus, then you could stand to have your assurance shaken. But if your hope of salvation is in the God who has promised and is willing and is strong to bring you all the way into the land of Canaan. Then you ought to be the most fearless people in the world. So if I've shaken your assurance, if your assurance was misplaced. Then I would say good. Because we need to rebuild it on a more solid foundation. The foundation of the today promises of the gospel. What is your hope of salvation today? Right now where you are, 
What is your hope? But I don't want to leave you shaken this morning. So let me leave you with a promise. The promise comes in the form of those first words. Today, if you hear His voice. If today, November 9th, 2014, you hear the voice of Christ speaking through His Word. Not audibly, but it looks like this. I'm not bored. I don't see this as irrelevant to me. This seems very relevant to me. That's the voice of Christ by His Spirit speaking through His Word. If today you hear His warning voice and you find welling up within you this strong desire, this irresistible urge to persevere, saying, I don't care what it costs, I want to follow Jesus, I want to make it all the way to the end, then you should rejoice because that desire is not natural within you. It is created within you by the Holy Spirit of God. And He who calls will justify and He who justifies will infallibly glorify. So stand on the promise. If your faith today is in Christ, if today you hear His voice and heed His warning and harden not your hearts, you're going to make it. So don't, don't dwell in your seat squirming in fear. Don't hear me say, I want you to go back 10, 20, 30, 40 years to the event of your conversion and ask yourself, was I sincere? Did I feel enough? Did I believe enough? Did I repent enough? I'm not asking you to do that. I'm telling you right now, put your faith in Jesus and you will make it. But there's some of you here, perhaps, who've never come out of Egypt. The whole warning of this passage is written to the church. Those who have come out of Egypt are marching to Zion and are in the middle of the wilderness living on God's provision of grace. Some of you have never made a start with Christ. You've never come out of Egypt. If today you have heard His voice through His word, then I plead you to respond in faith. Hide yourself beneath the blood of the Passover lamb. What does that mean? Believe that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died to pay for your iniquity. He died in order to turn away God's wrath from you. He died in order that you would be safe from the judgment to come. He died in order that you would have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Respond in faith. Hide underneath the blood of the Lamb and begin to follow Jesus. Follow Him through baptism. Follow Him day by day. Feed on His daily bread. Believe and follow. And all who call upon His name will be saved. So church, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but believe and be saved. Today is the day of God's grace. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of opportunity. And tomorrow it will be everlastingly too late.